What's up, everyone? Just a quick announcement before getting into the episode. Health Unchained was listed as one of 30 healthcare IT influencers worth a follow in 2021, and this was by Health Tech Magazine. To me, this is a big deal because it does validate the work I've been doing for the show for the last three years. It's no surprise that blockchain adoption in healthcare will be a slow process, but it will happen faster than most people think. We need to be aware of all the risks and challenges that blockchain will bring to our world. I hope these conversations on Health Unchained will continue to help the community, and I'm honored to be recognized as an influential podcaster in this space. Thank you to all of you. I appreciate you, and I wouldn't be here today without your support. If you have any feedback, check out the Health Unchained podcast website for ways to contact me. I always appreciate your comments and feedback. I'm super excited to share this episode on IoT and healthcare and cybersecurity with the head of BizDev at IoTex, Larry Pang. IoTex built the first consumer-grade indoor security camera that uses blockchain to secure its users' data. It's called UCAM, and anyone can buy one from Amazon for about 50 bucks. It's an interesting concept and is an important part of decentralized computer vision technologies. I tested the device, and it does work as promised. They also offer a tamper-proof device called Pebble that is more targeted for industrial use cases like supply chain and remote monitoring. And the Pebble is also on the blockchain. The IOTEX head of cryptography, Dr. Jingjing Fang, has been appointed to vice chair of the IEEE P24118.1, which is a working group in charge of establishing a framework of blockchain use in Internet of Things. They seek to provide a common framework for both permissioned and permissionless blockchain usage, implementation, and interaction with the Internet of Things. In healthcare, being able to visually monitor patients is a necessary part of providing care. The increase in IoT devices in our homes introduced new security risks for our personal data. Cameras and other IoT devices cannot continue to rely on centralized organizations to secure the data they generate. Larry was a great guest with tons of insights on the future of IoT and blockchain. I really hope you all enjoy the show. And remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Larry Pang, a member of the co-founding team of IOTEX, which is building devices in the IoT industry using blockchain technology. Larry, thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. Excited to chat all things blockchain and IoT and especially how that applies uh, to the healthcare industry. I appreciate that. And just for the audience's sake, can you give a little bit of a background on yourself and your career so far? Uh, and then we can get into your role in business development for IOTEX. Absolutely. So I grew up in Los Angeles, went to school at MIT where I studied econ and finance. 
And they say, when you don't know what you want to do out of college, you generally go into consulting. So that's exactly what I did. I spent five years in management consulting at a firm called Oliver Wyman, considered to be one of the top, top five consulting firms, mainly focused on financial services. So throughout my five years there, I completed about 15 projects for Fortune 500 companies, mostly focused on digital transformation. At that time, a lot of people were thinking about migrating from on-prem data centers to the and helping them through those migrations, those business proposals, buy versus build assessments. So I really sat at the intersection of front office operations and technology. It gave me a high level view of how these large corporations make their uh, decisions and learned that a lot of these decisions are driven by regulation and not necessarily by innovation. And that really uh, inspired me to look for uh, scenarios where, you know, or a job that was more innovative and forward thinking, right? Not just patching things uh, that don't work because of legacy systems, but creating brand new legacy systems that are more proactively solving these issues. And through one of these projects I did for the World Economic Forum, actually, we're looking at the future of payments. And amongst various solutions like M-Pesa, which is a mobile peer-to-peer payments company in Kenya, uh, Western Union to do cross-border payments. One of the things that came up, this was around 2015, 2016, was Bitcoin as an amazing tool for cross-border remittances and just a new form of currency, new form of money. And that's how I started really diving down deep into this rabbit hole of uh, crypto and blockchain started investing. This is around the time of the Ethereum ICO and starting to look at other uses of blockchain and what it can do. I've always considered myself to be more of like a libertarian kind of, you know, we can do it ourselves kind of a person. So, you know, diving deeper into the crypto community, seeing that there's a lot of like-minded people that weren't just thinking about crypto as a speculative vehicle, but actually using it for good. I think that's a lot of the things that we're thinking about here at IOTEX, not only to create technologies that are more secure, private, user-centric, but also delivering value to the people that, you know, historically have been uh, shunted by some of these uh, centralized corporations. So there's a million things to talk about at IOTEX, but the main thing I want people to know is that we're building an ecosystem, a platform, a network that enables everyday people to own and control their devices and their machines, as well as the data and value that their devices and machines generate. And no industry is more important than the healthcare industry in this regard, right? Everyone wants to own their health data, but not everyone knows how to utilize it or monetize it in a secure and privacy-preserving way. So that's a lot of the things that we're working uh, here on at IOTEX. And you know, I'll pause there, dive into my role a little bit later on. Yeah, that was awesome. And I totally agree that it's so cool that you're working on uh, at a company with a group of people that are really focused on fixing the problem at its core and not creating patchwork little fixes because I, we all know that doesn't last very long. So it's really great. And just for some context, IOTEX was founded three, four years ago. Can you correct me? Yeah, if I'm wrong? in uh, yeah. 2017. And you know, there's a quote that really summarizes what you just said, right? And this is something that's always stuck with me. It's don't fight the old system, build the new system, right? There's a lot of ways to approach data security and data privacy. The most common is regulation, right? GDPR and CCPA are just kind of slap on the wrist mechanisms to punish Google or uh, these centralized corporations retroactively, right? If they breach your privacy, then you have the means to seek financial remediation for uh, the things that they did wrong to you, but it doesn't proactively solve the issue, right? So it's really about creating the new systems that are private, secure by design. So you don't have to go through these tedious financial remediation kind of processes that are adding value today and are starting the discussion, 
but it doesn't solve the full issue, right? So no half measures, full stop measures. And I think that's really what blockchain uh, and crypto is bringing to life, right? New financial systems, new ways to secure, own our devices and our data through this Web3 philosophy. And we've just been living and breathing it for the past three, four years now. So incredible progress to see not only how IOTEX has grown, but the entire industry has grown as well as the follower base. So yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think it's interesting because you're right. The current laws are ways of paying back people when their data is stolen. But how can you put a price on some of your data, especially as we're collecting so much more intimate data about ourselves? So that's yeah. really cool. The whole point is for these companies never to be able to have breaches. So let's talk a little bit about the vision for Artex and exactly who founded it. You kind of talked a little bit about the, like why, but what was the founder's vision? Yeah, so uh, IOTEX got started back in 2017, and I feel like the profile of the co-founders uh, really rounds out the rest of the team. You know, I was founded by three people, Rowland Chai, Kevin Guo, and Jing Sun. Rowland has a really extensive background in large-scale systems. He's a PhD in cryptography from the University of Waterloo, I worked as a, a tech lead at Oracle and then Google, and most recently was the head of cryptography R&D at Uber, building a lot of the sign-in systems. Every time you hail a ride, you know, using one of Rowland's systems. So he understands what large-scale systems and security scalability really looks like. And that really underpins a lot of the design of IOTEX as the platform, right? Kevin comes from a different background. He's also a PhD in computer vision from University of Singapore, but he is a legacy Facebook guy. He worked at Facebook very early on for about eight years building a lot of ads products for them. So he knows how to build products on top of this large-scale infrastructure that Rowland has kind of masterminded and designed. But it really brings the usability, the user experience of traditional applications to blockchain. And that's why you know a lot of the people in our community are using our wallets today, our cross-chain bridge, our decentralized exchange. All of this is kind of built on that foundation of very high-quality user-facing products. And finally, Jing, she comes from a venture capital background. She used to be the managing partner at a VC fund called Sparkling Capital. And she's investing in AI, blockchain, cybersecurity, a lot of these frontier technologies. And they came together, you know, identifying blockchain as a very viable candidate to transform the internet of things as we know it, right? It started with this vision of connecting devices to the blockchain, giving devices identities, allowing de devices to write data to smart contracts. And that's really what we built over the past three, four years. And now it's coming to fruition, right? We're starting to see the first devices powered by IOTEX, the first dApps ingesting data from real world devices, which is different than ingesting historical data from an Oracle like Chainlink, but also very complementary. If you think about any type of insurance claims that you're doing, you need the historical benchmark and you need the real-time personal data from a trusted device to create these kind of decentralized contracts, right? So that's been our journey for the past three, four years. The why of all of it, uh, at the beginning, back in 2017, maybe the why wasn't so clear, right? But over the past three, four years, the headlines write themselves, right? All these security cameras being breached, all these like electro automotive, you know, autonomous vehicles coming to life. Our lives are being more and more digitized. There's gonna be 50 billion smart devices by 2025 that collectively right. generate 80 zettabytes or 80 trillion gigabytes of data. So uh, back when we started in 2017, the footprint was much smaller, but we only expected it to grow. And as a lot of companies are adding 
new bells and whistles to existing smart devices like flying cameras or voice assisted everything. We really feel like the biggest feature for uh, the next 10 years is going to be security and privacy. Without security and privacy, how can you utilize any of the fancy features or have peace of mind using your smart devices? So um, a lot of this is about getting people comfortable with where this kind of autonomous future is heading. And in, a, in an era where it's very difficult to know who to trust and why to trust, the problem is only magnified when it comes to our smart devices that deal with things in the physical world, not just you know, digital things that could be brought back, right? You lose your identity in the digital world. There's protections that the bank is going to provide you. You get rug pulled in the real world. That means your autonomous vehicle may uh, fly off the freeway or, mm -hmm. you know, hackers are going to know when you leave your house every day. These are real issues. And I think uh, blockchain and IoT is an amazing candidate to solve them. Absolutely. And your the company, IoTex, is also looking at a few different verticals. You mentioned healthcare, obviously security, cybersecurity and supply chain. Are there any other verticals that you've been looking into at this time? Yeah, you know, blockchain and IoT is really horizontal technology, right? Whether it's in agriculture, smart city, transportation, automotive. So you guys are building for for sort of like the whole, any industry. So you're building very agnostic to the industry and whoever, whatever clients or customers want to adopt, you will continue to develop for them. That's kind of the strategy. Absolutely. We have the long-term vision to be the universal protocol to connect trusted devices to blockchain. Um, of course, everyone, everything has to bootstrap in some kind of form or fashion. And the industries that we're most paying attention to right now are ones that I deal with very sensitive data or very valuable data, right? So the four categories, the four industries, I would say, are smart home, healthcare, automotive, and renewable energy. So those are, I think, you know, the talk of the town in crypto as far as industries where, you know, there's right for, right for disruption, right? I think, but going back to the horizontal point, everything we do, whether it's in our personal or our professional lives has to deal with some type of smart device today, right? And if, it, if not, then it's only a matter of time. You look at industries like supply chain, first step is to digitize those documents. Second step is to provide more transparency into where these assets actually are at any specific point in time. And when you combine those kind of things, one of them is more, uh, you know, supply chain finance related, document management related, with real world data that can inform the automation of these uh, financial contracts to settle. This is really where DeFi and DeFi and IoT come together. It's a concept that we call DeFi OT, right? So using real world data, real world triggers in order to settle financial contracts, I think is a huge concept, not only in just the blockchain and IoT space, but in the healthcare space, right? If you can prove to your insurance company with you know all the digital scales, all the wearables, all the sleep monitors that you are actively becoming healthier, they're going to lower your insurance rate, right? But it's really about providing trusted data into those contracts. Not all data is created equal. So IOTEX really combines tamper-proof hardware and tamper-proof software in order to generate tamper-proof results that anyone can trust, right? So we see this as the foundational building block and it's like an entirely new design space for the blockchain space, I think. Uh, this real world data we believe is gonna change everything, so. Yeah, and I agree with almost everything you said. I think that's really true. One thing that uh, resonated with me is you mentioned how smart homes, that idea or that like space is also growing and very important. And I specifically think about the aging population, you know, the population that's 
70, 75, 80 years old, not wanting to go to a retirement home, you know, for good reason. And they want to stay at home. However, you know, they have loved ones that are worried about them falling or they're going to leave the stove on and things like that. If you connect IOT devices to monitor a lot of these things, it would be, it would be great. However, I think some of the concern that these people have rightfully so is how can I trust, you know, my video cameras not being fed into some random person's basement. So real concern. And we don't know how that kind of information can be used later on. Maybe right now it's not much of a threat, but if it's being saved on some database in like, you know, five or 10 years, who knows what kind of AI can take that stream and, and manipulate it in a way that, you know, these people don't want. So I just think that's a really important space that you're talking about there. Um, add a little bit to what you said there. I think sure. it's really important, not only on the technological level, but almost on like a terms and conditions kind of level, right? The devices used today, they may become from companies that you trust, right? But the fact that they can flip the switch and change the terms and conditions about this data, this centralized database that they're managing for you, right? You don't have to look further than companies like 23andMe, right? 23andMe was a service provider. They allowed you to dissect your DNA sample and understand where your family lineage came from. To me, that's point blank period where their service should have stopped. But it was the case that they held on to everyone's genomic data and they sold that database for a quarter billion dollars a few years ago. I think if they held on to that data and didn't sell it, it would be worth in the billions, right? And we have to ask ourselves, okay, if their main driver of revenue from these data sales is literally a derivative of our genome or of ourselves, how can the customers of 23andMe not share in the benefit of that data sale, right? And selling your data to someone else may be an, an anonymized form, but that's where the, the flip the switch risk comes from, right? Like who's to say that Google that owns Fitbit today is not gonna be able to change those terms and conditions at the risk of losing their customers. But if there's a bigger you know, cash flow from selling that database, even in a non-anonymized form, these are really risks that we have to consider. And I think everyone is ready to start custodying the most important information about their daily lives, right? Whether it's their funds, that's why we see a big push for people to adopt cryptocurrencies, whether it's their messaging, which is why we saw a massive uh, influx of users from WhatsApp to Signal earlier this year, or more importantly, it's probably their health data or what's going on at home next, right? Do we really want eyes and ears in our homes that are controlled by these companies that over and over again breached our trust, breached our privacy? I think a lot of people are starting to say no to that question. They're willing to give up a little bit of user experience, a little bit of like non-voice assisted everything to have more peace of mind and more control over their, their homes and their health. And I think those are there's a huge trend today. Great points. And I think, you know, it's true. We as consumers, patients, individuals are beginning to see the value of being our own custodians of our data. I think that hasn't been even a concern in the last 30 years of internet web 2.0. It's been like, I want as many features as possible. So here's all my data because that's the only way to do it until I think blockchain. And I think what's happening now is we're creating the tools that allow for this, you know, AI abilities to, to help the user with their own individualized experience without the risk or without the giving up their data to someone else. That's a huge point. And, you know, I think one thing that 
freaks me out personally, not freaks me out, but it makes me question like why I use some of these devices is we're in a world today where all the algorithms that we utilize are closed source, but all the data that we provide to the algorithm generators are open, right? Blockchain fundamentally- Well, not completely open, right? It's, it's you know, open, open to, to the blockchain. company, right? So if we flip that equation, right? If we're able to have open source algorithms that we provide our private data to, knowing that the data is never going to uh, be breached or you know, exposed to other third parties, except this algorithm that we're using, this is the pure service economy, right? I am giving my data for one specific purpose. There's no backdoors and it can be proven because the algorithm I'm providing it to is open source. I know exactly what's going on. There's no backdoors, there's no uh, backdoor data sales, right? Like sometimes we have the question, if you wear an Apple watch, why did it just tell me to stand up? Why did it just tell me to drink five glasses of water? Why is it telling me everything, right? And I think when people start to have more choice in the algorithms that they choose with the same data sets that they can own themselves, then, you know, there's a huge uh, trend in healthcare today where, you know, clinical trials are being run on specific races, right? You know, the Asian 35 to 40 year old clinical trial or the, the Caucasian 20 to 30 year old trial, or, you know, all these different uh, sub, like more, more detailed segments that can provide people maybe a more accurate depiction of what their health is actually looking like, right? And if we own our data, and we're able to selectively choose what algorithms we want to process our data in a peer-to-peer -peer type of fashion, this is really what blockchain and IoT is trying to enable. You know, even with the 23andMe example, if you have your 23andMe data, today you can go to this app called Prometheus, and it's more of like a very detailed version of 23andMe that will tell you things like how susceptible you are to Alzheimer's or things that 23andMe can't tell you. But it's just to prove the point that if you own your data, you can choose what to do with it. If you don't own your data, you can't own or you can't control what you don't own, right? So there's always the risk that things are going on behind the scenes. It's going to be a little while until people get used to this model of self-sovereignty, owning your things, custodying your own things again. You know, what's funny is like we, we used to live in an era where it was completely analog, right? We owned our VHS tapes, we owned our CD, and then it went digital and all the benefits of digital gave us streaming video, streaming music, but it came with all these centralized risks of what is actually going on by giving custody of our information to these corporations. And now it's kind of going back into custodying our own things with blockchain, right? So it's kind of web one, web two, web three evolution. And I think web three is here to stay. It's only a yeah. matter of time to really start to see the benefits, but we, re we need these real world examples for example, with healthcare, things that people really care about, right? There's only so many speculators out there trying to make Robin Hood style, like AMC, GameStop type of returns, but <laughs> with these real world use cases of blockchain that are going to give people more freedom, more control and more value. I think this is going to be a turning point for blockchain. Yeah, no, I, I think it's kind of funny. Web 1 and Web 2.0, it kind of makes me think that those pe period in time in human evolution, let's just say, was a transitionary period where we just kind of, you know, without really knowing, gave away all our information, but we're going back to how I guess it should be. I mean, that's debatable too. I think it should be that we own our own data and have the rights to our data without risking other people selling it off, like you mentioned. So mm -hmm. 
I think that's happening. One thing I want to mention for about 23Me because you brought it up is to their credit, they did allow their users to delete their genome from their databases as well discard their actual sample. So their biological sample could be discarded on their website. So, I mean, you know, I didn't see my sample get discarded. There was no video of it. There was no like instant, they didn't like burn it or something or get rid of it in front of my eyes. But I guess I have to trust them that they did because they're yeah. a big you know, public company. I have some friends that work in like backend systems, right? At mm -hmm. very big companies. And sometimes they'll be like, yo, I saw something today. You got, you have to see it. They'll log in and they have master God mode access, right? So whether it's kind of like a drop in the bucket, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, by providing your data, they've already trained their model with it and they don't really sure. need it anymore if the product is the model itself. But there's a lot of instances, for example, like ADT, one of the biggest security companies in the world. They're, they had a huge scandal earlier this year where someone that had God mode access to the database was spying on women in their own homes, right? So it's however much you think you can trust these corporations, there's always rogue people out there that maybe don't follow the culture of the company. And it's only exactly. a matter of time until they get fired and found out. But in the meantime, if your data falls into the wrong place, especially your genomic data, it's out there forever, right? So every time you're doing your fingerprint scans, your retina scans, those are permanent. And those are not like a digital profile, your interests that change every year, right? Maybe last year, you're super into golf and now you're into surfing. Like your genome is your genome. Your fingerprints are your fingerprints. Your healthcare data is your healthcare data. So yeah, it's one of those things like healthcare data is something that everyone wants to own and protect for themselves, but no one can analyze it themselves. You have to give it to some third party, whether it's a centralized corporation like in web two, or as we evolve, it may be a open source and verifiably trustworthy algorithm that is going to deliver you that service, especially in the telehealth world, right? I think the entire model of healthcare is shifting where you can, you know, get insights from multiple doctors at the same time, some of which are not even going to be real people. They're just going to be AIs. They're going to tell you exactly how healthy you are. So I feel like even the doctor patient health, patient doctor relationship is more of a relationship management function than a, you know, detecting cancer with your eyeballs kind of thing. You know, computer vision is so strong these days that you're going to get a lot of insights from algorithms, but making sense of all of it. I think that's the future role of healthcare professionals. Yeah. And I like the, this idea of privacy by design. So I think that's the kind of world we're living in now in blockchain is everything should be designed in a way where these rogue employees are not able to, no matter what, no, even the CEO has no access to this kind of information. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's good for the company too, because then they've removed that liability. So I think that's an important factor, but let's talk about telehealth. I think, you know, you, you bring this up. I spent a few years at a telehealth company and I'm just trying to think of, you know, different ways that this is important because when a person, a patient has a visit with their doctor, they're revealing a lot of personal information. Maybe they don't want to share specifically in behavioral health applications. How can blockchain safeguard a person's rights and, and privacy? Absolutely. You know, blockchain has this concept of your keys, your funds, right? Popularized by Bitcoin. You can also apply that model to your keys, your data, right? And that's exactly what we did with one of our products. It's called UCAM. It's a security camera that lets you own and control your videos exclusively. You know, our engineers can't see it. Nobody can see it except you because we end-to-end -end encrypt all of your information with a private key that only the user owns, right? Um, applying this same concept to our healthcare data is very powerful in the sense that I can own my raw data 
And by owning it, I can also authorize it selectively and also revoke access to it at any time, right? So say that I'm just getting started with a new telehealth relationship and they want to see, you know, specific parts about my medical history, right? Before in the past, we had to provide our entire medical history outright. So they know everything about us and maybe they just, you know, download that file. It's on their database forever, right? With blockchain, you have this very peer-to-peer network where the transactions and the authorizations are all on-chain and revocable from this concept of called decentralized identity, right? It's different than centralized identity in the sense that centralized identities are owned and managed by, you know, the people that deliver them to you. Decentralized identities, you own your own identity and you're responsible for sourcing credentials and sourcing information to fill out your identity. It's very much like your passport and the stamps that you get to prove that you have certain credentials or certain abilities to do enter countries, et cetera, right? So this model of selective authorization of your information, it starts with owning your data, right? You can't authorize what you don't control. Today you can, but you have to go through the permissions of whoever owns your data, right? So this is really a way for everyone to have full control about who can see what parts of their history. You know, the the example that Bitcoiners love to use is if you're making a banking transaction, like, why do you need to know my address? Why do you need to know my social security number? It's literally sender receiver value, right? That's how Bitcoin works. Maybe you'd argue, you really could jump in there. You'd argue the government wants to have that information to safeguard society. I think that's the, the purpose of having that additional information. But when we're living in a more peer to peer world, when we're going back to, you know, I own this, you know, livestock and I'm giving it to you without needing government intervention, regulating that. Although, you know, there's arguments both ways. I'm not like saying one is right or wrong. So I think that's the reason that exists now. But like, you know, you can continue talking about how we don't necessarily need that information to execute a transaction. Right, right. You know, there's definitely safeguards, a lot of KYC stuff to prevent uh, money laundering and terrorist financing for sure. But, you know, at the same time, if we're just trying to send money between person to person, there's a lot of things that are collected about us that don't really need to be collected, right? Like if you're trying to figure out if I'm healthy or not, right? You don't need my entire medical history. Maybe you need like a, a time stamped copy of it. But, you know, the relationship with patient and doctor, it can be much more controlled and much more patient centric, right? This is what I want to show you. This is what I think, you know, Uh, If you need some more information, tell me that you need more information without just sequestering all of it from this this database of medical records, right? Some of which aren't even like in digital form. So I think the the more user-centric aspects of blockchain when applied to healthcare puts more onus on the patient to take care of themselves, manage their own information, and select what AIs or doctors they want to engage with to tell if they're healthy, right? So it really flips the script a little bit. Getting people to change behaviors is one of the hardest things in the world, I would say. But the beauty of blockchain is it also comes with incentives, right? It's not just a technology trust layer. It's also an incentive layer that, you know, if you if you have a healthcare insurer and they want to incentivize you to be more healthy, it's good. It's a win-win situation on both sides, right? Rather than using actuaries to model out every possible a life or death scenario that you may have just by incentivizing you to be healthier. You already see it in the car insurance industry with all states like safe driver's checks, right? If you prove to me you're doing healthy things to extend your lifespan, to make sure you don't have to go to the doctor as much, 
I'm going to pay you, right? Health insurers will be willing to pay you because they model out all of these different scenarios, right? So if you can prove to them, hey, I'm stepping on a scale every day, these results cannot be tampered with. They're fully verifiable. And I'm showing my body fat count go lower. I'm taking the guidance of my telehealth professional to eat healthier. You know, in the blockchain space, there's a concept of proof of work or proof of stake, right? Where you're proving these things to manage consensus. Why not have proof of health or proof of presence, right? A lot of the things that we're doing in supply chain space right now is about verifiable GPS data to trigger financial contracts, right? To settle uh, contracts as they happen instead of waiting for the seven day, 14 day invoice to clear, right? So if you have the ability to have a, a trusted wearable with the same secure chips as in your iPhone that protects your biometrics and things like this, there's no telling why, you know, proof of health can't be used to lower your insurance rate going forward. I always go back to the insurance example because I think it's a perfect blend of incentives and technology, right? But I think opening up this design space Having real world data on chain that's verifiable by others, just like this DeFi renaissance was kicked off with trusted price oracles, I think trusted real world data is going to transform everything for blockchain. And we're starting to see the first instances of that being built on IOTX. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And one thing I want to mention as well is instead of saying, you know, your BMI is normal and so we'll lower your insurance or whatever, there are people that, you know, are different. So their BMI might be normal for their DNA. So including genomic information. So having these multimodal uh, systems can really help assess your health as an individual, as opposed to generalizing. Because I think a lot of the hesitation of either insurance companies or uh, other companies is that, you know, it's hard to generalize. So so broadly, especially in America, where the populations are very mixed, you know what I mean? So I think that's another way that Theoretically, blockchain can help facilitate those types of smart contracts in a way. And I want to kind of jump back to the UCAM because it's a real product. This is according to the website and what I've seen, it's the world's first blockchain enabled security home camera. That's also hardware and software. So they, you guys are using Intel SGX to help protect the data on the hardware side. So I think that's pretty interesting. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean... It's important to know that blockchain is not a silver bullet that's going to solve everything, right? It's not a panacea. It is an important tool to register a trusted ledger. And also with smart contracts, it can be a very important orchestration tool to fire off instructions to other trusted technologies, right? You know, just like a lot of things in life, if you pollute something that is pure, the entire stack is going to be polluted, right? So your technology is only good as the entire stack of technologies that you apply to it, right? So when we say IoT, we say smart devices, hey, we're not talking about your, your cheap sensor that you can purchase for like 50 cents on the internet today. We're talking about tamper-proof hardware. And tamper-proof hardware is something that may be a little foreign of a concept to people, but the truth is you guys use it every single day, right? The chip in your phone that does your biometrics, and your face ID, your fingerprints, the reason why you trust your phone to hold that is it's in an isolated part of your phone called the trusted execution environment, right? It holds all of your passwords, holds all of your private keys. If you ever use like a MetaMask on your mobile phone or even on your computer, there's a sequestered, isolated and tamper-proof part of your computer that manages all of these operations. Another example is your Ledger hardware wallet, right? The reason why 
you trust it. Even if you plug your ledger into a corrupted computer, your private keys are going to be safe because it's executing using that trusted execution environment. A last example is a chip on your credit card that protects your spending credentials, right? That's why the whole swipe versus tap versus insert thing. That's why, you know, you don't see many people swiping their cards anymore because that's not a tamper-proof swipe. Inserting that chip and allowing it to read based on this one-of-one hardware is tamper-proof in that sense, right? So when you combine this tamper-proof hardware with a tamper-proof software of blockchain, then the result by nature is going to be tamper-proof, right? But if you're using tamper-proof hardware with, you know, maybe corruptible software, the downstream uh, implications of that maybe can't be trusted, right? So it's really about stringing together these trusted technologies. I really think the combination of, you know, tamper-proof blockchains, tamper-proof smart devices, and open source AI algorithms are going to be the foundation for a lot of the things we do in the future, right? It's really a source of automation in a way. If you have trusted data from a trusted device feeding a self-executing smart contract that is powered by a trusted blockchain that is sending instructions for an AI that's open source to extract insights and maybe potentially monetize that information, this is the, the foundational infrastructure of the future, especially from uh, military grade or you know things that require the highest level of trust, right? There's a great analogy that people love to throw around with blockchain is that you know if you are driving to the grocery store, you don't need an armored car, right? But if you are protecting something that's highly valuable and something that hackers greatly desire, you're going to want that armored car, right? So blockchain doesn't need to be used for everything. It's going to start with the most mission critical, military grade, sensitive slash valuable information. But once we get to that point, why not apply it to everything that we touch on a daily basis, right? That's the way I see these technologies really forming. And that's exactly what we did with UCAM, right? We applied tamper-proof hardware plus tamper-proof software to create a camera where anyone can verify that they are really the true owners, exclusive owners of their information. And, you know, we're starting to get into the next layer of this with this product called Pebble Tracker. And Pebble Tracker is more supply chain oriented. This is that secure element that we're talking about that holds the private keys and ensures the, the readings of this device are tamper-proof. And unlike UCAM, Pebble Tracker streams data directly to smart contracts. So you can start to do really interesting things like these physical digital if-then statements, right? It has GPS, climate, motion, and light sensors on it for supply chain purposes. But if you want to say, hey, if you want to prove to me that you are at a specific place at a specific time, then I'm going to trigger this payment to be settled or this workflow to be automated, right? So it's really these like physical digital if-then statements that are made possible. And I think that just creates a lot of different opportunities. You know, some healthcare D apps are using it to count steps with the motion sensor. Some people are using it to track running activity to prove you've ran certain miles. And this is really the proof of anything that IOTech is really trying to bring to the blockchain space. Right. And from what I've seen, a lot of these like pilots for blockchain and supply chain, they might be using humans in the middle that are actually, you know, saying that this package was shipped. So there's still that human in the middle problem. Mm -hmm. Using a device like what you're talking about, where it's measuring everything by a computer, we don't have to rely on that human who's prone to error. So mm -hmm. I totally understand that.
Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting what's going on in the supply chain space, right? Some like examples of very popular use cases are like IBM and Walmart, right? They're doing coffee traceability. They're doing lettuce traceability. And it's, it's interesting because they own their entire supply chains, right? This is a mechanism for them to gather the information they need from suppliers, almost as like a, a gate to say, if you don't provide me this information, you cannot be my supplier, right? Mm-hmm. But on a more level playing field, if you have a group of distributors and a group of suppliers that are, and, and everyone in between, all these intermediaries in between, that always end up in legal debates about, you know, who, how do you attribute fault if the end product is damaged, right? Having an unbiased third party that's not error prone and that's not human, that can even be a better way to trust each other, right? Like, hey, we're deploying a drone that's tamper-proof and trusted instead of having a intermediary that is hired and maybe they're paid behind the scenes to make the data look a certain way, right? It's not out of the question that these things happen today. Uh, I'm sure there's actually a huge black market for it. So tamper-proof devices, in blockchain, there's a huge concept of DAOs going on right now, right? Decentralized autonomous organizations. I fundamentally believe DAOs are going to transform a lot of the ways we do things, but maybe there's no humans involved in DAOs or any human intermediaries. But if we think about a decentralized autonomous organization in the real world, you can guarantee that machines are not only going to be collecting data to push those DAOs and their business logic forward, but also maybe delivering services as part of the DAO, right? Uh, vending machine DAOs, airport locker DAOs, all these kind of cash flow generating machines, autonomous vehicle DAOs, right? You need to ensure that devices that deliver the services and gather the data to inform these DAOs are fully trusted. And you know we're talking about things that are still a little distant, but this is exactly where we're trending, right? Yeah, yeah trust uh, is paramount. Yeah, trust is definitely paramount. I agree. And you mentioned autonomous driving. I just bring this up because I watched Tesla's AI day. I wonder if you did too. And autonomous driving, it's definitely coming. We're going to have to trust these vehicles to make decisions about how to drive, how fast, you know, avoiding collisions, et cetera. So I didn't hear that team at Tesla talk about blockchain in their, you know, architecture or stack. Do you think that they will have to use some sort of decentralized autonomous organization to manage that in the future? Or do you think they'll be able to be successful in the long term as a centralized company or a centralized service unit, whatever you want to call it? That's a great question. And I think it really comes down to the consumer adoption piece, right? Like with another big tech behemoth, Twitter, right? They're currently going through the debate of like, hey, man, maybe we should have built this as a decentralized thing to start with, right? Because now they're trying to build in uh, NFT profile pictures. Now they're trying to build in the concept of tipping, kind of like an OnlyFans model where you follow different accounts that you really love. And these are things, these things are hard to do from a centralized perspective, right? Tesla is a little different in the sense that I think they are a data company, right? Data is Tesla's biggest asset here in San Francisco where I live, you see all these vehicles, Waymo's, all these different brands driving around these vehicles with all these sensors and spinning and cameras. And what they're doing is trying to replicate what Tesla has been doing for the past five, six years, collecting data from their own customers, building this self-driving technology. And the, their competitors have light years to go to catch up to Tesla, right? Once you start to build in AI on top of that, uh, data set that they're compiling just by their customers driving, 
I think Tesla would be very smart to deliver some type of dividends to the customers that help to build this map, right? There's so many examples of this. There's one called Waze, right? Waze is that app that users literally annotate the map. Here's a pothole. Here's a police officer. Here's a traffic stop. And Waze sold for billions of dollars to Google about maybe three, four, five years ago. And it's, it's the same concept, right? If you have users contributing to the final product, they, don't, they aren't looking for a lot. They're just looking for something, right? So I think Tesla would be really smart to build in aspects of blockchain into their future. And it seems like they might be embracing that, right? They're, they're looking into, you know, Bitcoin. I'm not sure if Elon's really bullish on Ethereum, but I think he should look into IOTEX down the road, especially when we start to do things like collecting data from smart meters or from electronic control units in a vehicle. It goes back to that horizontal thing, right? Devices look different from the outside, but on the inside, their anatomy is very similar, right? Storage, compute, memory, connectivity, battery, that's a device. And regardless of what sensors you put onto this device, whether it's measuring moisture or it's a LiDAR sensor, or it is a, a camera that's just an advanced light sensor, right? All these sensors are literally just data generators. So Tesla knows that. I think they know the monetization ability of this data as well. So we'll see. That's a good question though. Yeah. And thanks for that response. And you mentioned that Tesla's way ahead of their competitors. I saw an article recently, Google Waymo mentioning that Tesla's not even a competitor to us. Like we're way beyond them. So it's funny how that's going to I'm sure that industry is, is going to be dynamically changing all the time in the next decade. Yeah. I think it's really important to watch that. Awesome. So I kind of want to talk, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but I have so many more questions for you. So computer vision evolution. So when I say that, I'm thinking about how cameras can be used or how AI can be used to use a camera feed and you know, detect objects or detect what's going on. For example, even in the smart home, you have, if you have that UCAM at home and you're watching an elderly person, remember this is a private video feed, but then mm -hmm. an AI can still observe that and, you know, watch if a person has fallen and stuff like that. So how do you think computer, computer vision is evolving? What should we expect in the next year, decade? What's your thoughts there? I think computer vision is going to change a lot of things, right? You're going to, you already see it a lot in like the augmented reality, virtual reality space. From a healthcare perspective, one thing I think that's fascinating is, you know, uh, my brother has this, the, the mirror, um, the healthcare mirror. I think they got purchased by Lululemon earlier this year. And it is a fitness studio in your own house, right? I don't know if they have computer vision built into it yet, but the next evolution for them is definitely to apply some computer vision to tell you, hey, you're doing your squat wrong, or you need to bend your right knee more when you're doing your lunges, right? And that kind of computer vision needs to be protected, but it also needs to be very smart to adapt to different age levels or, you know, so it's still in a very much like a data collection stage. Computer vision from the point of like general healthcare, I think it's, I, I think it's interesting, you know, if you see, you know, the way you walk in your own home, maybe you're a little sluggish today, right? Maybe you're walking extra fast and you're stressed out, right? These are all things that in the future home, uh, your home's gonna know about you, right? Um, we did a report actually called When Privacy Hits Home last year. And we looked into a lot of the patents that Google, Amazon, et cetera, were issuing. And it's very clear that the reason why they're doing Alexa enabled everything is they wanna know exactly what you're doing in your own home, right? 
The reason why they're, they tease that flying camera that can follow you around your home is not for a convenience purpose, but they can analyze this data to better understand behavioral things that you do within your own homes, right? And I think that whatever eyes and ears you have in your home today, you've got to understand that those things are listening and watching you, right? Like it's not just benign things like an ad showing up in your Instagram feed. You know, I feel like every now and then there's like a new Netflix documentary that makes people go like, okay, I get it. I'm off <laughs> stuff forever. And then they go back to it. It's just like kind of that addicting kind of thing, right? But I think it's just people have to be conscious, right? Very soon, I feel like there's going to be some nutritional facts for the devices that you use on a daily basis, what technologies are built into it, where the chips are coming from, similar things as, you know, farm to table. We want to know like what's in this device, you know, uh, how do we trust it? So especially with the devices that we place within our own homes, regulations can't help us there, right? There's only, you know, there's no safety net in the real world, right? So I think everyone just needs to be extra careful, but also appreciate the innovation that's going on, right? Very soon we're going to be living lives where, you know, we're sleeping at night. It's going to measure our, our blood levels, our health levels. It's going to order us food that's optimized for breakfast. After measuring our workout, if we overexerted ourselves, it's going to make a smoothie that, or instruct us to make a smoothie that's going to help us recover more, right? So the more data we're generating, the more AIs that are kind of predicting things that are more personalized for us, all of these features are coming. That's almost a guarantee. What's not guaranteed is whether these will be fully trusted and user-centric. And that's where the opportunity in blockchain and IoT and AI really lies. So when we think about it from that perspective, going back to the, the point, security and trust are paramount, right? It's not just an afterthought. It's a primary feature going forward. And yeah, we just need more people to evangelize this concept, I think. Yeah. And when we talk about IoT, I think, you know, we talked about a lot of camera devices, sensors, things like that, but our clothes, the chair that we sit in, you know, we mentioned like TV and refrigerator and cell phone, but even like the table that we were on or the book, the physical book that we're reading, I guess maybe that's not that important, but all these things, your hat, your shoes, they're all going to be connected as well, which makes me think, are people going to really adopt this thing? Is it going to be too much? Are we going to just over innovate in this space? Or is it going to be so important? Because we've lived so many years in our evolution without this stuff pretty yeah. successfully. Do we really need this stuff? And if we do, are we going to reach a point where all the decisions that we're going to make in a day have been made for us by an AI and we're just like robot? We've be The humans will become the robots following the algorithm there might be a split in society too you'll have these you know these technologist believers and then you'll have more primitive kind of humans not to say that they're bad in any way just will kind of diverge i don't know yeah. i think the the split is how i think about it right i think we're very blessed to live in the environments that we do right mm -hmm. there's a lot of less fortunate people out there that don't really have the luxury of doing anything amazingly fun in the real world. And if you introduce them to the metaverse, that's kind of popping up everywhere now, hmm. there's going to be people that live in the metaverse without a doubt, right? Even in Japan, there's like a, a phenomenon called hikikimori where there's people that are just, you know, don't feel like they fit into society. They live in homes, they order food in every day and the natural extension is going to be living directly in the metaverse, right? There's also people on the opposite side of the spectrum that live in, you know, Idaho and Montana and never want to see a cell phone in their entire lives, right? So I think everything in between is kind of where 
general society lies, right? So I want to say, yeah. So on that, like people, you know, the example you gave in Japan, living in the metaverse, ordering food online, they're not going out, they're not getting vitamin D from the sun, whatever. They're probably not working out as much. They're not having social connections in real life, which I do think is very important for an individual's health or mm -hmm. I think it is maybe, you know, yeah. one would argue otherwise, but you know, to what extent can they live? Like, can someone live 50 years in the metaverse? I guess 50 years is a long time. Things change so quickly, but it's you never know with this new generation popping up, right? I can I tell know. you the Gen Zers are, you know, they're smart, but they were, they're brought up in a very different way than us, right? Like the way I think about it is to use maybe a, a strange analogy. Like if you think about a kid growing up in Afghanistan, that's born in like 1998. They don't know anything except war, right? Mm, yeah, it's sad. Kids these days that are born after 2000 don't know anything except internet. And maybe kids that are born today will know nothing except the metaverse and cryptocurrency maybe, right? Yeah. So as these new kind of things rapidly change, like there's some people that don't, will never know that Uber never existed before or never, they're going to look at a floppy disk and they'd be like, what is that? What is that? Like, uh, is it a, is it a plate? Is like, what is that thing? You know, there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, shed the norms of everything that they've known from the past. Right. Like, and I feel like we're, we're we live in incredible times right now where people get to decide how deeply they want to use these technologies. But I think what we're talking about are more like wants than needs. Right. When we talk, start talking about needs, we have AIs and we have like smart devices that can uh, objectively make everyone's lives better by providing them more accurate predictions about their health, more, you know, visibility into their daily activities. Like these are objectively good things, right? But if you're talking about wanting to change your day job into a metaverse job, these are luxury kind of things, right? But that's what I think blockchain gets wrong a little bit, right? Not wrong, like it's the free world, everyone can build whatever they want. Blockchain was started with this premise of like banking the unbanked, making everything more trusted, and I think we're having our bells and whistles uh, kind of phenomenon right now, really <laughs> taking things over the edge with NFTs and with the metaverse stuff, which I think are very important uh, components of the future. Everyone wants to invest in this grand vision of the singularity and, you know, Facebook's like metaverse concept, whatever. But there's so many things that are universally needed that blockchain and IoT and everything our technology can solve, right? And I think that just the way the world works today, you know, everyone's chasing a quick buck, but there are people that are building things of value with the intention of making bucks off of it later. And I think that is something that we're going to start to see with this new design space, right? Um, we've taken the digital space very far already, but how the digital space can impact our real world activities, it may make it's going to, for sure, it's going to redefine the way we travel, the way we interact with uh, other people. But there's, I think we're just scratching the surface. I don't, there's so many different things that I think we haven't even thought about yet. Right. It's so hard to predict the future, even like 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, you would imagine the situation we're in now where simple pictures are selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So really interesting. Uh, and I'm referring to NFTs. There's one question I ask most of my guests towards the end, but I'm going to ask it now because it's relevant mm -hmm. is what do you think about the singularity? Like what you mentioned that is supposedly going to occur around the year 2045, according to Ray Kurzweil. What is your mm -hmm. anticipation of that? 
Yeah, the singularity is this concept of, you know, technology being able to do things better than humans can, right? In a lot of ways, I think this is already true. But from like a Boston Dynamics robot, you know, Tesla bot that they unveiled during AI day, it's a little scary to think about, right? Because like, this is moving so much faster than we, we ever thought. I remember watching Black Mirror episodes like hmm. four or five years ago with the social credit rating system and, you know, you know, deep interactions of playing video games together, or like, you know, my, my friend got a ransom note on his email saying, hey, like, we saw you on your webcam. We need you to send this many Bitcoin. Is that episode about, like, you know, someone not wanting to have what he did at home exposed, right, to hackers. So with the way technology is trending. That was a crazy episode, by the way. Very crazy. Yeah. Crazy it's becoming more and more real today, right? Like, it, 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 you can't discount the, the real world implications of what technology is doing, right? Both opportunities and consequences. I think the singularity is going to come, you know, it's just the way that we treat it, right? I think if we want to use the singularity and all these robots to, you know, lift up the bottom 1% of the, the entire world that has nothing, or we want to use it to automate away all of the decision-making power of the top 1% is very different scenarios, right? But I think- right, but with, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, not even the bottom 1%, you're talking like bottom like 90% or 80%. 90%, yeah. Exactly. yeah. And those things can help a lot, right? Like I, I grew up in a very, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family, but I didn't have to worry about a lot of the things that some people I grew up with had to do, right? And that allowed me to do a lot of things in my free time where in the future, if everyone can have that same experience, they could focus more on their studies, they could focus more on their health, they could focus more on everything, right? So it's kind of like a universal basic technology, right? Kind of like universal basic income everyone can appreciate the benefits of technology, even if they just have a cell phone and maybe like a health wearable and a camera at home, right? I really want to see that vision of the future come to life. But for sure, there's going to be people that want to use this technology to maybe not do harm, but do selfish things that make their lives disproportionately more advantageous to uh, the bottom, right? That's kind of how society is structured for a lot of, for centuries now. And well, actually really can change that. Blockchain can change those incentives. I think a lot of it has to do with financial gain, you know, just pride and ego and a lot of psychological dilemmas that we face as humans that be augmented by the use of a trusted decentralized system. And again, this will take years to kind of fully develop and there's going to be a lot of bugs and crashes and terrible things along the way, probably. But there is sort of this light at the end of the tunnel that a lot of us technologists and people that are interested in this space are driving towards, I think. And a lot of it is just getting the message out there. Yeah. And the beautiful part of it is that what we're building in this blockchain space is borderless, right? Equal opportunity, regardless of where you live, right? And there's a huge phenomenon in, in blockchain going on right now with play to earn, right? Do things in the digital world to earn digital assets. Iotechs, we really believe in play to earn but from a physical digital context, right? Do things in the real world to earn digital assets or digital reputation. And if that doing something in the real world is planting a tree, taking some carbon out of the environment, you know, everyone should be rewarded the same amount for that in the form of a cryptocurrency, right? It shouldn't just be restricted to the, the most you know, well-off nations in the world that have the means and the resources to do this, right? So there's a model 
that you know Amazon invented called Mechanical Turk, right? It's kind of outsourcing physical labor to people, and this is where the click farm thing came from. But applying Mechanical Turk model with crypto incentives in a borderless society, you start to see a lot of jobs just spring up where you know maybe these opportunities wouldn't have existed in the past. So that's what really drives me personally, at least, like searching for solutions like this. Level the playing field. You know, everyone still has to. You know, work hard and carve their own path, but just leveling the playing field, giving more opportunities in this borderless kind of capacity, it's going to transform yeah. a lot. Of- yeah, it's going to transform a lot. I agree. And you know, the way I look at this is, it can become a universal basic income in so- some respect because the appetite for data from AI, I think, is insatiable. I don't think we'll ever reach the point where AI is like, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm happy with my model now. I think they're always trying to learn. And that's because, you know, the universe is dynamic. It's kind of changing. We don't really know everything. We're just basing it off the evidence that we've gathered. So there'll be this continuous improvement function. And I also think over time, our personal data is going to become even more valuable in a sense Mm -hmm. where we can potentially just live our nice social human lives without labor, without all this stuff. Although I do, there's value in labor too, but, and real exercise and work and stuff. But the point is like, we'll be able to not have to live in poverty because we'll be generating enough data for the AI overlords to, to pay us in this cryptocurrency or whatever. And that that's a good thing for society. I think, you know, I could be regretting my words now, but that's how I see it. It's just removing the intermediaries from the equation, right? And in this peer-to-peer society where supply and demand is automatically balanced without any kind of intermediary in between, that's how value flows, right? Maybe the protocol is going to take 0.3%, but it's nothing like, you know, you sell a picture today on Getty Images or Shutterstock, they're taking 60, 70%, right? So how does a photographer make a living or how does someone that wants to contribute to a clinical trial or, you know, uh, donate some uh, DNA samples or, you know, participate in like maybe what, what's what's the term for? It? It's kind of like a non-FDA approved type of things to say, exactly. hey, you know, take this medicine and run three miles every day and prove that to me with a tamper-proof reading and I'm going to pay you in crypto. Like these opportunities can arise, right? Of right. course, some regulation has to be wrapped around it going back to the consumer protections thing, but people are going to be able to make their own decisions in this sure. kind of new context, so. And in these, you know... In the real world, people make, you know, crazy decisions all the time that are not approved or recommended. So, but we're not taking that information and applying it to collective learning. We're just, you know, those people are isolated. They make a mistake and they do something, but that information isn't really used to help generate collective learning. I think in the future, if their privacy is protected, you know, those actions, decisions to take certain drugs for example, is one that can be used to better understand humans overall in a privacy preserving way. That's the key thing there. I want to get to some technical questions about IOTEX for some of the developers that are listening that might be interested. And it's not mm-hmm. too technical, but you can you know, let me know if you could or can't answer them. But the first one is regarding just the blockchain protocol and network. So what kind of blockchain protocol is used for the IOTEX? Solution. Yeah, so we built IOTEX completely from scratch. Started in 2017. It's an EVM compatible layer one block. We wrote our own consensus mechanism. It's called Roldy Post. It's a delegated proof of stake mechanism that we actually have a randomized selection of delegates for a little bit more decentralization 
with the same amount of scalability and security. Our mainnet has been up since April, 2019 never gone down, never had any major hiccups. And more importantly, we just made IOTEX completely Web3 compatible. So you can use your favorite Ethereum tools directly on IOTEX to build, right? We're already seeing a lot of people porting over smart contracts, written solidity directly to IOTEX with minimal configuration. So we're really expecting more of these uh, types of things to sprout up, right? But above and beyond that, what really differentiates IOTEX is some IoT uh, sub protocols and middleware that we layer on top of our layer one blockchain, right? Things like we have a protocol called TrueStream, which is basically, think about it as a real world data oracle, right? You grab data from a device with an identity registered to the blockchain. And based on that trusted identity, you can feed that data to various data ingesters, right? Whether it is where we have subgraphs live on our network, we are working with companies like API3 to create you know, oracles that you can set the pricing and the terms, right? If someone wants to access your data, mm. you set your own prices, your own terms for the data that comes from supply chain devices like this and other devices in the future. Talking to people like Cartesi, Covalent that are doing things like, you know, data aggregation, exposing this data to layer two computing environments. So really, IOTEX is starting to cement ourselves as kind of the hub for trusted devices and trusted device data. And the last part I'll mention is we're starting to build a lot of cross-chain bridges. We have one to Ethereum, to Polygon, to Binance Smart Chain, doing two-way token swaps and working on cross-chain contract calls. So, you know, in this kind of uh, era of blockchain where you don't really see any too many new brand new layer one blockchains being launched, right? You're starting to see a lot of competition in the ones that are so deeply focused on being general purpose or DeFi focused, IOTEX is really the only EVM compatible layer one chain out there that is really focused on, you know, IOT and this real world data, right? So we see ourselves as partners to all the other layer one builders, whether they want to build an application directly on IOTEX because they're more IOT centric, or they want some real world data to settle a prediction market or to, you know, fuel, you know, GPS based NFT claiming, or like, you know, all these different concepts about how real world data and smart contracts can, we're just really excited to explore. You know, we're working with a large ecosystem builders that are doing supply chain, healthcare is these like NFT GPS games, uh, and also a lot of DeFi stuff on IOTEX. But once Pebble Tracker um, is fully out in the hands of developers in end of September, I think we're really going to start to see how people want to use real world data with uh, smart contracts. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Today's News Corner comes from Nature Magazine. In September of 2021, Wageningen University and Research in the Netherlands announced it will allow nonprofit organizations to use its CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology for free for non-commercial applications in food and agriculture. It's an important development and another step towards making a technology with untapped potential more accessible, especially for researchers in low and middle income countries. This university is just one of many research institutions globally that hold patents on CRISPR, a technique that enables precise changes to be made to genomes at specific locations. Other institutions, including the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the University of California, Berkeley, 
which have some of the largest portfolios of patents on the subject, also provide CRISPR tools and some intellectual property for free for nonprofit use. But universities could do better to facilitate access to CRISPR technologies for research. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office alone has around 6,000 CRISPR patents or patent applications, with 200 being added every single month, mostly coming from China and the United States. Licensing agreements should be transparent so that institutions offering access can be held accountable for the promises they make. But few publish these agreements out of the concern that it would give their competitors an advantage. However, if universities all agreed not to charge for IP used in research, they would no longer be in competition and could collaborate to create model agreements. Smart contracts on the blockchain is a way that intellectual property and patents can be managed and shared transparently in the public domain. The future of science will necessitate profoundly better ways for society to share our discoveries with each other without losing a competitive advantage. CRISPR and blockchain in tandem have a lot of promising potential. I'll be watching these developments closely. The time has come for all universities that hold CRISPR patents along with public funders and international institutions such as the World Intellectual Property Organization to consider how they might join forces so that IP on CRISPR can be more easily accessed free of charge for research under clear and transparent rules. Check out the show notes for more information. And now let's get back to the show with Larry Pang from IOTEX. One thing I want to ask just to follow up on is you said it's using delegated proof of stake, but who are like how many nodes or how many delegates are there? And is there, is it an open system where anyone can become a delegate based on some requirements? How does that work? Yeah. So it's completely open. Anyone can become a delegate. You need to provide a little bit of minimum stake skin in the game to qualify to be a delegate. And you have to get a certain number of votes from the community to become a delegate. There's how also much would you need? Like, do you know how much you need exactly? Or So the minimum requirement right now is 1.2 million IOTEX, which is just about $80,000 USD right now. It used okay. to be lower because we got listed on Coinbase, our price kind of jumped. But this is a governance decision that our community can decide to lower that minimum requirement if it makes more sense, right? You mentioned you're on Coinbase or iTex is on Coinbase. Is that, did I hear that right? Yeah. We, you know, this is a really big moment for, for us because, you know, everything that we wanted kind of happened for us in like the span of two, three days where we we're trying to get on Binance Futures for the longest time, Coinbase, try to get the ledger integration out. And all of that happened over the past like couple of weeks. So it's really exciting for us. Of course, the price is good, but the most important thing is we are monitoring our web traffic and monitoring our IOPay wallet downloads, and those are just spiking as well. So it's going to be kind of the coming out party for IOTEX. You know, we've been building a very humble team. You know, we've been building, right? Like people discover us for the first time. Like, how have I not known about you guys? You have real devices, real dApps, real mainnet, real community. But, you know, I think we've always felt that, you know, IoT and blockchain is hard, right? We want to have a coming out party when we really have things to demonstrate. And it's just a matter of months, not years until that happens. Right. So just a lot sure. of interesting stuff uh, going on in, in IOTEX. Yeah. And I can, you know, I'm just thinking about healthcare applications. There's so many IOT devices, well, just devices in healthcare. If you look at a hospital, there's like 
thousands of different types of devices that are either monitoring a person's metrics or, you know, scans or so much information that can be generated from those devices. And they need mm -hmm. to be, you know, kept secure. Exactly. I mean, you could think about every healthcare device as it, you know, it's a self-sovereign service provider, right? Every time you step on a scale, it delivers you a service, right? Every time you put your arm in one of those blood pressure monitors, it's delivering you a service. Every time you use a full 3D body scanner, that's delivering you a service, right? In the future, maybe these devices and these machines, it, it won't matter who owns them, right? As long as you can trust that this device is delivering you a service with, with like open source code, you know, you can have open type of cash flow generating devices that can be fractionally owned by people and serving real users, right? It's kind of like a vending machine, right? A vending machine just delivers you a service owned by one single entity today. In the future, we can maybe see, you know, you go to a pharmacy today, they're going to have a blood pressure monitor. Maybe there's a whole lineup of devices out there that are going to measure some part of your health associated with your decentralized identity for you to keep and no one else to see. And it could be provably verifiable to a doctor if you actually need some serious help. So a lot of possibilities, a lot of possibilities for sure. Can we talk a little bit about the data storage and like the cloud services that you offer with UCAM and how that works? Because my assumption is that it's not being stored on a on your blockchain necessarily, mm -hmm. but probably some third party and, and encrypted. So you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, there's kind of two models we use with UCAM and they'll also translate to other IoT devices in the future, right? So UCAM uses AWS, Amazon Web Services to store your information, but that's all it is storage, right? The most important thing to know is the encrypted files that are stored on Amazon Web Services are end-to-end -end encrypted with a private key that only you own, right? So if the cloud is breached, then none of those data, none of those files are viewable by anyone except you with a private key, right? So this kind of trips up people in a lot of ways saying, hey, you know, you guys are storing it on centralized storage, but at the end of the day, you know, whether it's stored on a local server that is stolen out of your house or AWS kind of server that's breached, it's kind of the same concept. The most important part is the authorization that only you can view that information, right? Same concept as IPFS or Arweave, Right? If you're storing encrypted files on IPFS, which is in our roadmap for the future, this is also a great way to store your information, but it just costs more money, right? And it needs more people to seed and leach these files, LimeWire Lime type of thing. So for our first ever UCAM device, where we didn't have the luxury of waiting for people to serve data or relay data to the right people, you have to go with these centralized services, but apply the same principles of blockchain, your keys, your data to that process, right? One thing that we did do with IPFS for UCAM is we do firmware updates directly from IPFS. So anytime you need to update your firmware, the software updates are done through the Apple store, or the Android store, but firmware updates are one of those things that are very tricky because you need to download those from the internet, right? And if you have a, a fake link that you click, everyone's probably heard horror stories about people trying to update their ledger device or their MetaMask with a new cloud update, it's a false link then that's going to corrupt your entire software, or in this case, your hardware, right? So pushing those firmware updates directly from IPFS and signed, attested similarly on GitHub, you know, this is a great way uh, for us to use IPFS for that. But, you know, we're talking to a lot of uh, storage providers. Everyone's seeking data to store, right? Filecoin is giving massive incentives right now for anyone that runs a server and actually puts data on it. 
So I think IoT is going to be the biggest data generator in the world, if not already in the world, right? 80 trillion gigabytes of data by 2025. Not all of that's going to go on blockchain, selectively hashed and selectively authorized when needed, but using the trusted authorization framework that is blockchain. It's important for people to understand that kind of architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Two things I want to say. So one is Thank you for letting me uh, try out the UCAM. You were so kind to send that over to me. So I was able to set it up. One of the first things that I had to do to your point is generate a private key. And it gave me like a string of letters and numbers. I wrote it down on a piece of paper and that's my private key to access my video stream. If I ever wanted to uh, access my camera, no one else can do that. You can't do that. The IOT, IOTEX team is unable to do that even if they wanted to. So I think that's really interesting, or at least like I believe that, right? And it, based on what I've seen, and it is open source. So in a way, like I just trust that infrastructure. The second thing I want to say is, are you or have you guys thought about how much data that's being generated is junk data? Like, are we creating so much junk data in the interwebs, you know, cyber space that you know it's meaningless, or there's just no way to like get rid of it? What do you guys think about that? I think there's raw data and then there's insights, right? Insights are what people pay for. And whether an insight is like a timestamp, okay, tell me when this asset was at this point on the map, that could be an insight. Or it could be throughout this journey, what is the average speed that this car traveled? That's also an insight, right? Or it's comparing this vehicle with all the vehicles around it, how fast relative or how safe relative was this vehicle compared to others. So depending on the sophistication of the insights you're trying to extract from your raw data, that's really what it comes down to, right? That's going to be where a lot of machine learning and AI comes into play to make those insights deeper and more accessible to everyday people, right? Today, to make sense, this goes back to the healthcare example perfectly, right? Everyone wants to own their data, but reading your raw data, like a, on a doctor chart, okay, blood pressure is this, like, 80 over 50. I don't even know the, the terminology for it, right? Like, I don't know how to measure, how to read my blood pressure readings, right? So the insights from your raw data are the most important piece. But I think that there is a lot of junk data that will never really see the light of day, right? If you think about a static sensor somewhere in the desert, right? That's meant to early detect wildfires. 99.9% .9 of the time, that data is worthless until you have the air quality breach that says, holy shit, there's a fire, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really about the insights and the triggers that we can glean from these devices. The other thing I'll say is that there's always a primary use case of a device, but more and more we're starting to see secondary use cases of devices, right? Primary service of a autonomous vehicle or just a car in general, right? Can be to take you from point A to point B. In the future, that may be taking other people from point A to point B, or maybe with all these cameras attached to it, the, the secondary value of it is when you're not using it, it's going to drive around and collect data just like a Waymo does, right? In the healthcare perspective, you know, maybe the scale or any type of a healthcare device can serve its owner primarily, but also have secondary value to other people, right? So I think this is a really interesting point about like, who is your device serving and what data is it generating and what's the subject of that data, right? So that's the interesting thing about how this is going to evolve, you know, like the functions of our devices as we know them today are going to fundamentally change in a lot of ways, right? Primary and second, maybe, you know, self-serving and data and value generating modes 
um, already starting to see this with computers, right? If you're not using it, turn it on, donate your compute uh, to Filecoin, donate your storage to Filecoin, donate your streaming capabilities to Theta Network, you know? So yeah, it's interesting. It's very much supply and demand kind of a question, but we'll start to see more pairings of that naturally, I think. Yeah. So just thinking about the, you know, IOTEX and UCAM and you know, your other uh, Pebble sensor too, is there any like integration right now or in the roadmap with other home devices? Like, you know, you have Ring, Alexa, Google Home. Are, are, are you planning integrations with these centralized systems or are you just building your infrastructure and avoiding the centralized companies completely? What's your strategy there? That's a good question. You know, there's open source alternatives to a lot of the voice assistants out there, which we would be much more receptive to do, right? Right now, like IOTEX is, our strategy is, you know, hardware is very hard. You know, especially this year, getting this thing manufactured and out the door during this global supply chain delay, massive global chip shortage has been a challenge to say the least, right? But what's important about this, like taking a page out of Helium's book, right? We have a lot of respect for Helium. I think they're building a really cool connectivity network, decentralized going into 5G, right? The real trick for them was open sourcing their hardware, right? We don't want to be a hardware manufacturer forever. In fact, you know, we work closely with a chip manufacturer called Nordic Semiconductor, to build the Pebble Tracker device. And we worked directly with a security camera manufacturer called Tenvis, who sold millions of cameras worldwide to build UCAM, right? But even then, integrating our software into these brand new hardware devices is a challenge. So what we wanna do is open source our hardware, let anyone create the hardware themselves and have it powered by IOTEX, meaning the integration is already built in there if they wanna to start to use it in smart contracts and such like that, right? So. These devices that we have running on IOTEX, there's about 7,500 of them globally across 62 countries. We see these as fully functioning products that our customers like you hopefully are enjoying, but they're also proofs of concept for other devices to adopt this model, right? Like wearables are challenging because they're battery operated and reading the blockchain and doing this kind of transaction with the blockchain with a, a wearable device that's very small could be a challenge, right? But if we talk about a scale that you can plug in, or we talk about a larger mirror kind of function, these are great candidates for this, your keys, your data model that we've already built for UCAM, right? And if there's a, a device that's more targeted at streaming data directly to smart contracts, Pebble Tracker is an amazing template for that. And it's not only on the hardware side, it's on the firmware side, it's on the software side, it's on the sub protocols that are native to blockchain side of things. So. What we're doing is building infrastructure where it's not just software, it's also firmware, it's also hardware, right? So that's really the, the journey that we're going through right now. Hardware is hard. <laughs> I don't want to go yeah. through the process of launching UCAM. No. Yeah, no, totally. I appreciate that. That have the expertise take on that challenge for sure. That's awesome. So one, one question here related to what specific examples do you have or are there any? that are in healthcare with your company? Are there any partnerships that you can speak of or specific use cases that are, seem to be growing that yeah. you, we haven't shared yet? Yeah, so there's two I'd like to mention, right? The first one is kind of tangential to healthcare. It's called HealthNet and it's built by one of our OG delegates named Consensus Networks. And they actually just signed a $1.5 million contract with the US Navy to build HealthNet, which is a medical supply chain, kind of inventory tracking, predictive analytics type of tool. And what's really interesting is they're building it on public blockchain. They're not building it on a permissioned private blockchain, right? That's so, really cool. 
Yeah, they decided to build on IOTEX using our smart contracts and using Pebble Tracker as kind of a trusted and unbiased data feeder into their predictive analytics engines, right? To say, hey, you know, was this package shipped in the conditions that it was supposed to be, right? A lot of these military grade type of medical assets have a lot of restrictions about acceleration that it can move at, temperature, humidity, air quality that could be transported at, even just visibility into where the heck this thing is in the world with GPS, right? So a lot of this tamper-proof data combined with the tamper-proof system that they're really trying to build, this is literally military-grade stuff, right? So it, it, it needs the full stack again. If you have any kind of poor data or unverifiable data that's feeding your systems, that's the single point of failure. That's the bottleneck that's going to break the entire system, right? So in that respect, very relevant for vaccine tracking, you know, making sure the inventory of even predicting where the inventory is going to be less and less using all these data sources. That's one really interesting healthcare use case. The other one is very directly healthcare related and is built by this company called Health Blocks, right? A team out of Amsterdam that has a lot of history in the medical space. They're building an application that is not really targeted at exclusive ownership of health data to start, but they want to hook up Apple Health and Samsung Health to your decentralized identity so you can co-own your data along with Amazon and along with Samsung. And using that model, there's a protocol in IOTech called Phoenix that allows you to grab data from an API and associate it with your decentralized identity. What they're trying to do are a lot of different kind of concepts, right? And the best way I can describe it is in DeFi, there's a concept of a liquidity pool where everyone puts their own tokens into the pool, providing liquidity that others can trade on. If you replace the concept of a token, which is just a digital representation of some type of data with actual healthcare data, if I put my healthcare data into a pool and we can aggregate this data pool from bottoms up perspective, and you have research institutions or hospitals or anyone querying against that pool to get insights, then you can provide the dividends back to the people that own the pool, meaning those that contributed data in the first place, right? And what they're trying to close the loop with is using proceeds from, you know, taking surveys, providing your healthcare data anonymized to earn the HealthBlocks token, which you can then use to pay for telehealth services. And maybe in the future, accessing those AI algorithms that we've been talking about, right? So it's really interesting. It goes back to the whole concept of DeFi has done for blockchain. It's created all of these brand new bottoms up business models where you can trade against things that you don't necessarily own. You can lend and borrow things in a very pure fashion. And when you think about tokens and data as just digital representations of you know, value, then we're going to start to see a lot of, uh, once we have enough data out there and we're capturing these network effects, Metcalf's law, you know, we're going to start to see a lot of interesting use cases sprout up. And finally answering the question, like, how do I make money from my data? We have to replicate some of these business models that Google and Facebook have done, right? They have literally built massive top-down data sets of their customers. If we can recreate what they've done over the past decade from a bottoms-up perspective, that's what Web3 is really all about, driving value back to the users and not the service providers that are actually data salesmen at the end of the day, right? So well said. Yeah, I agree. I do have a question about the company and wondering what your biggest challenges are at the moment. Like what is keeping you up at night? 
That's a good question. You know, I think that awareness and the caring of blockchain and IoT, I think this is, if we look, when we look back on it in five years, in retrospect, it will be inevitable that real world data is going to change a lot of things for blockchain, or at least unlock this brand new category of use cases, right? Like I'm super bullish on geospatial stuff plus blockchain, right? Grabbing things that have to do with geographies, meaning GPS data or travel routes traveled, or even like topologies, right? Like flood zones or, you know, air, airplane routes, like all these things they can layer on top of geographies. If we have that data available to smart contracts from trusted devices, it's really the f- foundation for a lot of automation types of use cases, right? My biggest worry is that this stuff is not as plug and play as forking your favorite DeFi protocol and launching it on a new blockchain, right? The fervor of the crypto community of, you know, searching for the next honeypot or trying not to get rug pulled by playing very (laughs) risky games, right? This is the focus model of crypto today, right? I wouldn't say it's necessarily a worry. You know, I think seeing is believing, right? There's a lot of projects out there that have pre-blockchain and IoT, but really have nothing to show for it. I think IOTEX is one of the rare ones that does have a lot of real world devices. And I, I think everyone's going to succeed that's working in the blockchain IoT space. I just Everyone? Think, I, th- I think so. There's a very big market, right? People don't hmm. like to admit it, but we're all working on very different things, right? Can, Not you share some of, can you share some of the companies or competitors that are kind of in this space as well, uh, maybe? Yeah, people talk talk a lot about, you know, the big ones like Helium, IOTA, even VeChain, right? No one's really doing what IOTEX is doing, I would say. Helium is building a connectivity network, right? I think IOTEX and Helium are going to collaborate very closely in the future because our devices need connectivity and Helium's connectivity network needs devices, right? It's a natural fit. Both are kind of decentralized in that way. For now, you know, I think that disrupting telcos is Helium's game, disrupting centralized device manufacturers and service providers is our thing, right? IOTA is almost like a little bit of a black sheep in the blockchain space because they're using Tangle, right? It's a direct acyclic graph. It's a different architecture. I would say the they've even attacked the blockchain approach to IoT in a way, but they have their own vision, right? For how, you know, machine to machine fee-less payments should work, right? But the ability for a machine to pay another machine is not the full picture, right? Your d- device has to have identity, has to be able to plug into smart contracts. I have my own thoughts about some of the hiccups they've made in the past, but it looks like they have a new foundation under them and they're really trying to do this thing for real. So how, what, what bad thing can I say about that, right? Everyone's on their own path, right? VeChain yeah. is also doing a lot of things. They sign sure. a lot of enterprise contracts doing like QR codes, but I wouldn't say that's really necessarily like full IoT, right? Like Whenever someone has a comparable device to UCAM or Pebble Tracker, you know, we're going we're gonna to applaud and say, you know, let's work together. But until then, I think proof of product is really important these days, right? So we have nothing to hide, everything to show. And I think, yeah, it's time for the world to really know like what we're up to. But to go back yeah. to your original question, right? I think like what keeps me up at night is just being anxious for, you know, when people will start to realize that this is going to be a massive industry. IoT, McKinsey estimates up to $11 trillion in value by 20, yeah. uh, 2030, right? You think about what one tri- 1% of 1 trillion is, 
that's $11 billion, right? So huge market, not just for IOTechs, but everyone working on uh, decentralized IoT. Yeah. Yeah. It's the integration of, like you said, digital space and real world. So it, it's going to be huge. We haven't, we've been interacting mainly just on the digital space for the last 30 years or so. I just want to mention to my audience as well, I did do an episode with CEO of uh, Spiritus Partners, which are using IoT technology for securing medical devices specifically. So they're focused just on medical devices, quote unquote, they're the Carfax for medical devices. So like they can show you the provenance of a device over time. So check that out. Episode 51, if you're interested. Great. So kind of want to move on and have a few questions. And then I think we're wrapping it up soon because this has been an awesome conversation to just want to make sure we cover everything I intended to cover. Let's talk about the company itself and the team and the culture. How big is the company? How many people? And then like, what is the culture? I know you guys are probably distributed technologically, like you guys are all separate in different places, but tell me about it. Yeah, no, we started in the office. You know, a lot of the core team was based in uh, the Bay Area here in California. And then COVID happened and we went, we never went back in the office again. I think, you know, everyone works in a very, you know, self-driven capacity. Right now, the team is about 30 plus globally. We have a lot of engineers here in the US, in Europe, in China. But what's really the next foray for IOTechs is... We've been so focused on building, rightfully so, right? We started in 2017, whipped up a mainnet in like less than two years and starting to launch brand like actual hardware that we built from scratch all in the matter of four years, right? So the ability for us to do that was having a very amazing tech team that knows everything from deep cryptography to blockchain infrastructure to IoT, right? So that's been our journey to date. I would say up until the end of 2020, that was really our journey, right? Now, you know, now that the platform is ready, now that we're ready to bring it to the world, the next step is really to onboard an incredible, you know, uh, non-tech team from design to business development, to sales, to marketing, to community. So that's what we're really focusing on. We're hiring a lot right now, bringing on a lot of marketing resources and community resources. You know, the ability for IOTechs to move very fast has kind of been on our community's trust in us to build the platform to a point where now we're ready to give it to the community, right? Mm. I think a lot of networks try to decentralize a little too fast and just move a little slower, right? But I think that now, you know, the technology has always been decentralized. I mean, the minting of blocks, the consensus has always been decentralized since the day we started our mainnet. You know, the foundation doesn't run any of these nodes, right? But from the decision-making process about what features to add next, what initiatives to pursue, what devices to build, you know, has been largely driven by uh, the core team, right? But now the real focus is on, again, enabling other people to use the templates that we've designed to build things that they want to build for their specific use cases, right? So that's really the next stage for us. That's really the coming out party, I think, these non-tech functions. So it's interesting, you know, (laughs) I think the tech function will have its own culture which is let's not sleep and just code all night, I guess. But the business function will have our own culture. The non-tech function will have its own culture of just being open. And, you know, I really want to build a, light, like a lighthearted community. What we work on is very serious, but the spirit of crypto is, you know, very fun and lighthearted too. So we want to have people to have fun when imagining these solutions in the future. So if this fits your requirements for a new job and you're interested in anything we said, we're hiring a lot. So just reach out to me if you're interested in joining. 
Sure. And I'll include a link to the guest careers page uh, as well in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Well, thanks for sharing like that sort of roadmap, I guess. Is there any additional roadmap items you want to cover? I know you said Pebble late September might be, it will be coming out. Anything else in the rest for the rest of the year or even next year? They want There's to share a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, I think IOTEX has built out all the smart contract related functionality that we need. We are running the latest EVM now. We're fully Web3 compatible, meaning all of the developer tools like Remix, Hardhat, Truffle that developers love to use are now fully compatible with IOTEX. So we solved that problem. Not problem, but we deliver these capabilities to enhancement. <laughs> exactly. The next stage for us is to fill out the last missing big components that our developers tell us they need and or want, right? One of them is Chainlink for verifiable random numbers and for price oracles um, and just for general oracles in general from those historical databases to cross-reference with these real oracles that we're developing, right? That's going live this quarter. I'm very excited about that. Another one is like stable coins and lending markets. You know, these are all pillars that are built on other networks, but will come with a different flavor on IOTEX, right? This kind of DeFi OT narrative about lending and borrowing your data or, you know, using a stable coins as payment for querying data. Like these are all pillars that other networks use for DeFi, but we need for our vision of DeFi OT and just IOT on blockchain in general, right? So I think there's a huge first mover advantage for people that want to build or port over their existing dApps to IOTEX or build something brand new on IOTEX. A lot of the dApps that we have, you know, we have a DEX called Mimo. We have really great dApps like Cyclone, a lot of play to earn games that are launching on IOTEX. It goes to show that people can build whatever they want on IOTEX because we're a fully functional EVM compatible layer one blockchain. Just so happens we have these IoT capabilities that are extremely unique to us. So we welcome both sides, right? Whether you want to launch your existing product on IOTEX to our uh, large community. I think we have like over 100,000 Twitter followers now, or you want to build something more niche in the IoT, geospatial, smart home, supply chain, et cetera. We welcome both sides, right? And I think that's, yeah, it's really unique to IoTEX what we can do, so. Appreciate that. And just one thing I want to clarify for the audience, you've mentioned this a couple of times, EVM compatible, IoTEX EVM compatible, that's just Ethereum virtual machine. That's what right. you mean by that, right? Just want to make sure. You're compatible, you can think about it kind of like, like the Java or Python kind of uh, level of familiarity in the blockchain space, right? Like when people go to learn smart contract coding, you're, they're learning Solidity, which is the programming language that's executed by the Ethereum virtual machine, right? I think it's interesting what Solana is doing with Rust. You know, Rust is very popular outside the crypto space, but it's one of those types of things. I think EVM compatible chains and the ecosystem of EVM compatible chains are going to be very interoperable in the future. So we see that as a huge opportunity for us to provide IoT data and insights to Ethereum, to Binance Smart Chain, to Polygon, whether they're, again, just to settle like a prediction market, you know, will it be this temperature in San Francisco on this day, right? You need that data. And, you know, they don't have really the middleware that we have or the IoT capabilities that we have. So it makes sense. That's the bridge that really makes sense, right? It's win-win for both of our networks. So we fully embrace the EVM approach, always exploring other VMs like, you know, Facebook's VM, like DM or Wasm, you know, there's a lot of other options out there, but EVM is always going to be the, the primary in our heads, I think. That's interesting. And I feel like the audience members that are still listening at this point probably might be aware of EVM anyway. So for those that weren't aware, now, you know, so now I have a couple of just more personal questions and then we could wrap up 
First one is, do you have like a favorite business leader in history or now that has really influenced you in the way you think about business? It's going to be a controversial one, but I really like Elon, man. I think he does not give a F about what people think <laughs> about him, right? And I think that it very much blends into the spirit of crypto, right? Like if you always stop and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Without going with your conviction, like I think he said something along the lines of like, you know, if you respect or agree with my vision, that's fine because it's my vision. It's not yours, right? And that really sat with me because, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like the technologies that people believe in always have to be rubber stamped by a VC today, right? And respect mm -hmm. to VCs everywhere. They provide the capital for us to build the things that we build, but they're not deep into any of this stuff that they're not as deep as the, the builders are, right? So if you have conviction in something and Elon shows his conviction by putting his money where his mouth is. There's all these stories about, you know, taking his PayPal proceeds, rolling all of it into SpaceX and Tesla. It takes balls to do that, right? So I really respect him for uh, those anecdotes. I know he's a little loopy at times and his perspectives on Doge are not appreciated, but <laughs> I think it's his worldview that, you know, people should ascribe value to what they deem valuable, right? And that's Doge's history. I don't agree with him on Doge, but I agree. I appreciate the way he pursues what's in his head. Yeah. Fair enough. That's, that's a fair answer. Last question is just, you know, this is a healthcare and blockchain podcast. So how do you stay fit? Like what are some of the activities you do to stay healthy, active, especially with, you know, being maybe a little bit more isolated during coronavirus? What are your favorite ways to stay fit? Yeah, luckily I grew up playing tennis. So I, I played a tennis since I was six, you know, was nationally ranked and stuff. So I knew how to exercise mm. and I really like running also. So, you know, I played college tennis and always had decent health habits, I would say. But the thing I had to learn a little bit was how to eat healthy, right? And I, I wouldn't say I've experimented with everything, meaning like Atkins or keto or like all these different diets. But one thing that somehow I've started to do is intermittent fast, right? I eat mm. one meal a day. I eat a big dinner and it makes me feel incredible. Like, I think I feel better than I ever have. I still have energy. The only downside is if I get hungry during the day and I eat something, I tend to fall asleep right after because it throws off the cycle a little bit. So I think just paying attention to your body metrics, you know, I wear an aura ring when I sleep to track my sleep. When you sleep or you wear it all day and when you sleep? When I sleep. Yeah. Yeah. But I used to wear an Apple watch these days, just at home, you know, like not starting to get into the practice of drinking more water. So I didn't really need the reminder from the Apple watch to tell me that. But I think that's the important part, right? It's like, I never really focused on the data side before I always went on feel, right? But data will tell you things that, you know, maybe you can't discern for your own self, right? I think it's really interesting. A lot of people are scared of knowing. I used to be one of those people as well, but I think that, you know, just understanding your body by using these tools, it's just something people have to get more familiar with. Or, do you uh, think, do you think we'll eventually have IOT devices in food? Like I'm talking, you want to grow corn and inside the corn, there's a nanobot device, IOT device that you know, it was embedded there genetically somehow. And then when you eat it, it's associated with your body. And then I'm, I'm thinking too futuristic probably, but yeah, is that no, something so. that... Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of examples or, uh, of this in practice, right? Maybe not having devices themselves in food, 
but I know there's a lot of people working on like things where you can run like a black light over some food. So it's like, like a food dye that's hmm. grown into the food. I'm not sure if it's, you can oh. consider it GMO, but same thing with like clothing, right? There's a lot of people that are developing thread and material, yeah. like uh, chemical engineering kind of uh, processes that will tell you where this thread came from. It's like a point of providence. So you can knit a shirt and you run some type of machine over it, then it can tell you that this is from a sustainable source, right? So taking that practice to say, hey, if I have a, if I have a farm and I have a special device that I can run over this, the, the skin of a peach and it will turn a different color, just like a black light would do with uh, white sheets or something like that, right? That could be an interesting way to approach provenance but i don't think like inserting a sensor into a fruit yeah it's been out there i was taking like the most extreme example those stickers those translucent stickers people are putting qr codes on fruit these days but you know one of one hardware chip like it's called a, a nfc tag or an rfid tag on individual SKUs of fruit it's not out of the question especially when the price point of those things goes lower and lower due to Moore's law, right? Hmm. These are good questions. You know, never say never in in the way that life is developing these days. We live in incredible times, so. Yeah, no, it's basically like magic. We can turn on this device in our pockets with a screen to access the world's information. That's magic. It's a dream in many, for most of our society, society's history, really. Larry, this has been an awesome conversation and I'm glad we took all the time that we needed because I think it's worth the conversation. I hope the listeners really like took some value out of this too. So again, I just want to thank you on the IRTEX team and really just wish you the best of luck. I'll be following your company and you to see how it goes. And maybe we'll have a future conversation with you and Elon Musk one day talking about, you know, blockchain and autonomous vehicles or whatever we'll talk about, but thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And you got to learn more about IOTEX. Check out our website, IOTX.io. We got Telegram, we got Reddit, we got Discord, we got all the things that crypto people love. And yeah, just to close, I think blockchain and IoT is really just getting started, right? It's been such a, it's almost like a mythical thing that people were preaching back in 2016. We're starting to see some real stuff come out of it. And I think IoTex is definitely uh, leading the way in a lot of respects. So definitely follow our progress. And if you want to reach out, I'm always happy to chat. So thanks so much, Ray, for the podcast. And let's definitely do it again sometime. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.